Good morning. I did not pick on you when I said ignorant human beings. Scooch over. <laughs> Sit down. Pay attention. Okay. I'm going to uh, mention that our uh, scripture readings are by Alexander Scorby, and speaking of which, brother. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into the louder. mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot which also was the traitor. Picking the twelve apostles, before he chose, he prayed all night. What was he praying about? Well, that's left as an exercise for us. Could he have been praying for guidance? Maybe. Um, he was Christ, and he was God and man, a divine nature, And you're going to pick on me about that, brother. He was deity, and he was human. We know he emptied himself of some great portion of his divine nature when he became incarnate, but now the Holy Spirit resided upon him, giving him back some of that deity nature. Did he know exactly who he was going to pick? Well, the 12 apostles were picked before the earth was created. God made those 12 men for that job. Did Christ know before he picked who he was going to pick? I'm going to leave that argument to other people. He may have spent all night praying for the men he was going to pick. That would have been very typical of Christ. But he spent the night in prayer before he chose. And then he chose 12. He called to himself his disciples. We don't know how many there were. There were a large group of people who had chosen to follow Christ and to live their lives according to his teachings. From that group, that indefinitely large group, we don't know, maybe 50. I don't think it was 100, but that's personal opinion. The Bible simply doesn't say. He picked 12. Simon, a.k.a. Peter and Andrew, a pair of brothers. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Philip and Bartholomew, Bartholomew also known as Nathaniel. Matthew and Thomas. And James the Younger, Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot, a.k.a. the Terrorist, uh, Judas, also known as Thaddeus, the, one of the quietest, the least known of all the apostles, and Judas Iscariot. And I did a little research because I was curious about Iscariot. You know, if you look up, what does Iscariot mean? It means traitor. Well, that's not true. It's come to mean traitor. Um... If I tell you Benedict Arnold, anybody know who he, anybody not know who Benedict Arnold was? I'm curious, you know? If I ask, so are you raising your hand? Because you don't know? No. Do you know who Benedict Arnold was, ma'am? No? Okay. Benedict Arnold was one of the great heroes of the first year of the American Revolution. Somewhat of an unsung hero, but a man, a general, who led, contributed to to two major military victories, including the capturing of Fort Ticonderoga. He was injured in battle. 
He didn't receive adequate medical treatment. He never got the credit he believed he deserved for his military contributions. And so he sold plans to the British. And Benedict Arnold is a name associated with traitorous behavior. Similarly, Iscariot has come to mean the traitor, but it doesn't. It means from Karioth. It's just Greek. It tells you where the man came from. Because Judas is a very common name. So calling him Judas from Karioth does help you understand who you're talking about. Also notice he was Judean. He was the only apostle who was from Judea as opposed to Galilee. But this lesson is not about Judas Iscariot. In the intertestamental period, the Pharisees had established a standard for righteousness. They started with the law of Moses. They mixed in the oral tradition of their rabbis. And they developed a set of rules to follow. And this was the basis for self-righteousness by works. This was the accepted standard throughout Judah and Galilee. If you ask anyone in Israel during Christ's ministry, how do you get to heaven? They would have said, well, the Pharisees tell us what we have to do. And if we follow those rules, God will consider us acceptable and we will go to heaven. This was the accepted standard. This is one of the things I think we don't understand. Everyone knew how you got to heaven. Common knowledge. And Christ is about to shoot that idea full of holes. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in three chapters in Matthew 5 through 7. It's also recorded in Luke 6. Now, scholars debate whether this is two parallel accounts of the same event or two different events. Because while there are many similarities, there are also differences. Matthew says Jesus went up to a mountain to escape the crowds and taught them from the top of the mountain. Luke says he came down to teach the crowds after starting higher on the mountain. Luke's description of the uh, sermon includes only four of the blesseds. Matthew names, I think, eight or nine. And he adds four woes. So it's not quite the same message. This is a big argument for some. There are scholarly papers written and positions taken. Because this really matters, right? No. Wrong. There are hills to die on. There are doctrines to defend to the death. And then there are the little anthills. I encourage you to defend the doctrines of salvation by faith alone, or eternal security, or believer's baptism, or salvation for, own, for, for all. But don't argue about whether there were two sermons on the mount or one. Paul writing in God's name and with God's inspiration, says, don't argue about the little stuff. Just let it go. It don't matter. There are churches that have divided over this stuff. Does anyone here believe that what is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7 was the only thing Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount? Read Matthew 5 to 7 out loud. It's maybe 15 minutes. Jesus talked for hours. So either he said more, 
or he talked really slowly. <laughs> Does anyone believe this was the only time he preached this message? You may not have thought about it. I guarantee you he taught this message for most of a year. Here and here. Because he didn't teach it in one place and then radio and television broadcast told everybody about it. For obvious reasons. I don't think he did it once. I think it's recorded. He may have given that message a hundred times. Actually, maybe not a hundred because... There's a lot of things in the Bible that make me think he did his big messages once a week when people were available. But what's important, what we want to talk about here, is the meat of that message, what he was talking about in that message. And let's, talk, let's take a look at Matthew starting in, uh, 5, starting in 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. A new way, which is the same old way, but it was a really new way in the ears of most of his audience. Christ says, I'm not here to destroy the law. It still retains its purpose, and it still retains its purpose today. The law sets out God's standard. And Christ says that not one jot or tittle, in the Hebrew that would be yot, uh, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is very, very simple. I mean, it's, it's kind of like our uh, letter I. There's just not a lot to it. Tittle is a flare mark, little leg that goes off of one of the marks, kind of like the leg off the R. I don't mean the big leg, I mean the little serif at the bottom. The smallest letter and the smallest part of a letter in the law will remain unchanged until the world ends. That's, that's how unchanging God's law is. Christ says the law, Christ says I'm here to fulfill it. 
Because if you understand the law, you recognize that a sacrifice is required. And Christ was there to fulfill the law. The law could not pass away because it is of God. And if God is eternal, then his law is eternal. If God is immutable, unchanging, then his law is unchanging. And Christ says that doing it and teaching it is the highest calling in the kingdom of God. And then he says, unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees, you have no hope of heaven. And anyone who was actually listening in the audience went, what? He's kind of a long way away. Maybe I didn't hear him. Hopefully he'll repeat it. Because everyone knew how you got to heaven. You followed the laws and the rules of the Pharisees. And the very best people at following the laws and the rules of the Pharisees were the Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless you do better than the Pharisees, you can't go to heaven. And everyone goes, who's listening goes, I have to do better than perfect. I have a problem. Now, I guarantee you, many of the people just let that information pass by because they don't want to hear it. But if you're listening, you have a problem. Now, the difference is not quantitative, but qualitative. Now, quantitative refers to counting things, how much of something there is. So to be better than the Pharisees who strove for zero sins, you have to do less than zero sins. That's silly. In the real world, you can't get less than zero. Greg, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but the difference is qualitative. It's in the character. If I can give you an analogy, imagine that heaven were on an island in the middle of the ocean and the Pharisees were going to get there by car. No matter how fast they go, they can't get to the island. There's no bridge. They could drive as fast as they want, but they're going to go sploosh before they get to the island. Jesus is saying you need a boat. You need a different approach. Now, when Jesus is preaching, he keeps saying, you have heard that it was said. Am I out of order? I'm out of order. We'll talk about that in a moment. Hang on. But you'll notice in the coming passage, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. When he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, have you not read? Not quite the same thing. Because when he's talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to literate people who have read the law themselves. Have you not read? Now he's preaching to the common man, and he says, you have heard it was said. Because they're illiterate. They ain't read it themselves, but they've been taught. I'm going to come back to this. Let's go to this next passage, brother. I don't know how I got those out of order. You have but... heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Hang but on, I brother, say pause. That whosoever... Okay, I'm sorry, the problem is up here. <sighs> Forgive me, I need to reboot my brain. We just talked, we just 
read through the passage. Yes, sorry. I'm sorry. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. That's what we wanted to talk about. You have heard it said. The, the Pharisees were very clear in their teaching of the law. Now, they added a bunch to it, but they i got to give them some credit. They did teach the law. The Ten Commandments, the core of God's law to man, were contained in their teachings. They then proceeded to add on so many embellishments and curly cues and coats of paint and shellac that it was hard to spot, but it was there. You have heard, don't kill. If you kill, you're liable for judgment. But I say unto you, Christ says unto them, A principle more clearly delineated, it's not just the outward works, but the inward attitudes for which you are liable. That it's not just killing somebody, it's yelling at them, it's being angry with them. It is the interior ideas that eventually, if allowed to fester, will result in murder. He says, that is sinful too. Now, some say that Jesus was adding to the law, raising the bar, making it harder to get into heaven. Wasn't it hard enough? In a way, he was, but only to the Jews. When God had given the law, Moses understood that it wasn't just the act of murder. David understood that it was the attitude behind Your life that matters. The prophets understood. But the Pharisees had fossilized the law. They'd made it rigid. And they'd focused on the physical. God's intent had always been how you live your life. The attitude, the intention behind is what led to sin or not sin. But Judaism always chose to focus on the acts and the rules rather than the spirit and the attitude. They kept it physical. In the same way, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he couldn't make the transition from the physical to the spiritual. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, who was not a Pharisee, but had that same common attitude, couldn't get past the physical illustration of water and transition over to the spiritual. Everybody wants to keep it on the simple, physical level. That's not what God was talking about, though. He continues, he relates this attitude then to worship. Don't think you can worship God while you're angry with your brother. He says, walk away from the worship, fix the issue with your brother, then you can worship God. For the Israelites, completely contrary to everything they've ever been taught. Next passage, please, brother. Think not that I am come to... Sorry, brother, I'm sure that was my fault. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, 
that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So next Jesus talks about adultery. He talks about murder and adultery. Ever thought about why he would focus on these two sins on the Sermon on the Mount? Do you suppose that his audience had a great problem with murder and adultery? They were out there sleeping with each other's wives and killing each other all the time? No, no, I don't think that was it at all. These people lived under the law of the Pharisees. These were not common criminals. These were common men. Ever gone through the list of the Ten Commandments and kind of gone, how am I doing? Have you ever done that? Oh, come on, I can't be the only one who's looked at the Ten Commandments. You look at the Ten Commandments and you go, thou shalt not kill. Eh, no problems, I don't have to worry about that one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Nope, no problems. Christ picks the two easy ones to not break and demonstrates that everyone breaks them all the time. That's why he picked on those two sins. Because when you're going through the list, those are the two you don't worry about. Unless you're a resident in Huntsville. You know, if you're a good Christian person, you just check those two off. I'd have nothing to worry about. Until we talk about the reality of the attitudes behind. And now every drive on the morning that I take to work, I'm guilty of hell because I'm angry at the other drivers around me. Jesus challenges their standards on adultery as well as on murder and makes it very clear that it's the thought which is first sinful. And he goes on to say that hell is a terrible place and it's one you're better off avoiding. You're better off losing parts than going to hell. Is he suggesting that his audience should be popping out eyes and lopping off hands? No, it is hyperbole. He is exaggerating to make a point. But it's a valid point. If I have a choice between heaven without my right hand and hell, it's not a difficult decision. Put yourself in the shoes or sandals of someone who's listening. They might have a prayer of being as holy and righteous as a Pharisee, but if God is making purity of thought the standard, it's hopeless. In emphasizing the true intention of the original law given by God, Jesus killed the idea of works-based salvation. That's what he was here to do. It's the start of his second year of ministry. He is through the preliminaries. He has picked his apostles. He has made his name known. He has performed enough miracles that the common people recognize this as a man from God. It's time to move on with the message. 
And the first thing he's going to do is take that structure built by the Pharisees and knock out every support under it. And if you're listening, in first century Israel, you realize you have nothing to stand on. Now what are we supposed to do should be the response of the crowd and anyone who's thinking in there. Let's continue here in Matthew. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He doesn't stop there. He keeps preaching. You have been told, love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. This was a teaching of the Pharisees. The first part, straight out of the scripture. The second part, never passed the lips of God. Hate thine enemy? Does this sound like our God? Thank you, brother. It was taught as part of the oral tradition. It was passed down. And remember, the Pharisees thought the oral tradition was as important as the given word. So they had no problem stating this. Love thine neighbor, hate thine enemy. All you have to do is draw the line in the right place and you can hate anyone you like. Jesus says you can only be godly once you love and pray for your enemies. If you only love those who love you, then you're no better than a tax collector. And remember, the lowest of the low was the tax collector. They were considered the worst traitors. They were so specially hated that when the Pharisees listed the sinners, they broke out the tax collectors. They they were worse than the other sinners. When you see the Pharisees complaining, Jesus eats with sinners and publicans. And Jesus says, if you don't love your neighbors, you're no better than the worst sinner that society can name. I'm not going to stand here and try to tell you the worst sinner our society can name. I'll leave that up to you. But by the words of Christ, if you do not love and pray for your enemies, you are equal to them. What an encouragement this Sermon on the Mount was. That was sarcasm. Anyone listening is going, if this guy's really from God, we got a problem. That was the entire purpose of the message. I think we miss that. We stand here. 2,000 years later, with a big revelation of God, and this does not look like the shocking message that it was. But it helps to put yourself in their shoes and understand this came out of nowhere. 
for the people of first century Israel. Now, Jesus closes this section with saying, therefore, and remember, whenever you see a therefore in both scriptural writing and unscriptural writing, it's a shorthand. Based on everything I've told you, here's the conclusion. Shows up in the writings of Paul, shows up in the teachings of Christ, shows up in any textbook you care to read. Any logical argument, you, you lay out your arguments and you say, therefore, here's my conclusion, Christ's conclusion. You need to be perfect as God is perfect. And again, anyone listening is going, what? But it was always there. This was not a surprise if you actually knew your law. There were a number of references. I happen to like Leviticus 19.2. Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus was the closing sermon of Moses, reiterating everything he'd taught Israel before he went up on the mountain to die. It wasn't a surprise. But we cannot be perfect as God is perfect without the power and spirit of God. And again, if they knew their prophets, this had already been promised by God. Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular, I like Ezekiel's version, talking about the future of Israel from his position after the uh, Babylonian interregnum. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. This was the promise of God to Israel over 400 years previous, and now it's coming true. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about how you cannot do it on your own. You need God's help. It was promised, and now God is executing it. But what we see here at the start of Jesus' second year of ministry is an information commercial intended to get the idea into their heads. And Jesus basically spends the second year of his ministry repeating this message in an attempt to get it through the very thick skulls of the Israelites, of the, the, the Judeans. And then not into his third year does he get into details like, I have to be sacrificed. But he's establishing the foundation. And he takes a year to do it because he doesn't have modern media. And he's got to personally reach everybody. And Matthew and Luke record this as part of Christ's ministry for us to read. 